So most of us, most all of us, I'd have to say, learned at some point in our journey to call God Father. Rarely do we really stop and think about what that means to call him Father. And I have to say that for some of you, this may be a bit difficult to call him Father because your father wasn't all that helpful. He was less than perfect. That's the way it was for a lady I read about named Sherry. She never had a really meaningful conversation ever with her stepfather. She didn't know her father. She only had stepfathers. And, but they never seemed to be interested in her, she felt, as a young child. She remembers being ex- ignored by her father as if she, she didn't exist. And she grew up thinking that there was something wrong with her, something that she had done. In her mind, she assumed that she was the problem. And so it was that for Sherry, she, um, she had a hard time thinking of God as father. Maybe, maybe you had a good father. Maybe you had a father that was loving and kind and faithful, true, firm. Maybe, maybe you had that kind of father. Or maybe you had one more like Sherry that was absent, maybe abusive even, uh, sometimes demanding and controlling. Maybe that's the kind of father that you had. But the point is that all those influences, whether good or bad, they all impact how you think about, how you relate to, God as Father. We're in our study number three, that we're going through the 28 fundamentals of Bible, the Bible, and we're rooting our faith in Bible truth so that we can be inspired and equipped as followers of God to do His bidding, to be His witnesses, to be His disciples today. And so today, our study is about the Father, Abba, Father. Jesus called God Father, and he taught his disciples to pray to our Father. And when Jesus prayed in Gethsemane, you know, he spoke to God as his Abba, Father. He said in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, Abba, Father, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. James, the brother of Jesus, Paul, they both called God Father. And the psalmist, many places in the Old Testament, but the psalmist called God Father as well. Psalm 89, verse 26. You are my Father, my God, the Rock, my Savior. And Isaiah and other prophets called him the same. But I have to ask, I want to ask you, who is this God we call Father? Is he kind? Is he cruel? Is he close by? Is he involved or is he far off and aloof? What kind of father is he? And how you answer this question will define you. A thought leader named A.W. Tozer made this stark claim. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Look at that again. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most the most important thing about you. So what you think about God, that's going to shape you. That's going to shape your destiny. And here's the problem, as I see it. We usually end up 
with a God that looks a lot like us, interestingly. Huh. I read about a seminary professor who started every semester with a questionnaire, uh, with, with two surveys, two questionnaires. The first one was a set of questions where he asked each student to talk about themselves. And they had a list of questions, what they like, what they dislike, where they, where they like to go, and all these various things. And then the second, uh, same set of questions, exactly the same set of questions, but this one they were to ask and answer about Jesus. Um, what do they like? What do they dislike? All these various things. And what was interesting is that 90% of the time, the, the answers were exactly the same about themselves and about Jesus. And I have to say, that's why theology, that's why uh, what we know about God is so important because we all have theology. We all do theology. It's not merely for theologians. Theology is just is, is thoughts and opinions about God. So, uh, this is most important. I, I also read about a celebrity who was interviewed and um, said that growing up he went to church with his family, but he left that all behind when he went to college. And when asked why, he said it was because he couldn't believe in a God who would limit sex to one man and one woman in life. What do you think of that? Huh. So, I just have to ask myself, is what I think, is what I like, is what I feel about God an accurate barometer for what he's actually like? <laughs> or what he should be like? You know, the, the Bible teaches us that most of our ideas about God are wrong. Most of them. Jesus spent the bulk of, the bulk of his time helping religious people better understand God. That's what he did. He, he actually helped them, he, and, and he, he helped them to work through their thoughts because their thoughts about God were wrong. Over and over he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus said that. And there's a story in the Bible that, that really is crucial. It's, it's a story that I like to call a molten moment. It's, it's a moment when we get to see in a powerful, compelling way a picture of who God is. And I want to go there this morning and we're going to camp out there and stay there the whole time. So just a little background. Israel, God's people, are en route from slavery in Egypt to um, freedom in a new land, a promised land. And en route... Moses asked God, show me your glory. That's Exodus chapter 33 and verse number 18. Show me your glory. What he really wanted was to experience God personally, fully, himself, to know him, to know who he really is. And God graciously tells Moses that, Moses, you can't see my face or you'll die. No one can see my face and live, he said. But he said, oh, that, that's... Um, Oh, Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. But God says, I'll do something better. I'll do something better for you. And then that's verse number 19. He says, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. So this, in my opinion, is a watershed 
moment. It's one of the few places in Scripture, in the entire Scripture, in the entire Bible, where God describes himself. It's essentially, it's saying, this is what I'm like. And God is saying it. This is who I am. And this is where we're going to camp. And by the way, this verse, these verses are some of the most, if not the most, quoted Bible verses by Bible writers. You find it all over the Bible. Here they are. Thank you, James, for reading it this morning, but we'll read it again just so it, it, it's, it's in, your, in your mind. Exodus 34, 5 to 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, I don't know where you go when you describe God. If someone were to ask you, what is God like? Maybe you go to those words that we use so often, those omni words, you know, like, well, God is omnipotent. In other words, he's all-powerful. Or maybe you might go to the next one. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Or he's omnipresent. He's everywhere at, at once. But when God describes himself, this is God describing himself, he doesn't start with, well, I'm this powerful. He doesn't start with, this is how much I know. He doesn't start with, this is how, much, how long I've been around, and this is the space that I inhabit. He doesn't start with those things. When God describes himself, when God describes himself, he starts with his name. He starts with his name. And uh, that to me is, is an amazing thing. And he, and he talks about his character. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Rather than just talking about his power and his presence or whatever. He talks about his character and, and his name. And that makes sense to me. Because to start with omnis, when we're talking about God, is sort of like if, I, if someone asks me about my wife and I say, well, she's years old and she's 5'4 and she's 100 pounds and she's got black hair and brown eyes and a beautiful combination of Egyptian and, and Iraqi and Swiss. And, and you could, you'd say, that's all true. <laughs> that's all true. Even the stuff you didn't hear, it's all true. But you say to me, well, what's she like, though? What's she like? Why did you fall in love with her? What makes her her what is her character and that's why i love this passage in exodus because it, it describes god's character and it turns out it turns out as i read it as i study it he's better than any of us could imagine he's better than our wildest dreams and he starts out with one basic idea his name his name now in bible times a name was important. You know that. In Bible times, a name was your identity. A name was your destiny. A name, your name was the truest thing about you. Your name. So when, when Moses on Sinai uh, is on Sinai and God introduces himself, this is a significant moment. 
And it says he, he passes before Moses. This is Exodus 34 and verse number 6. And he proclaims, he says, the Lord, the Lord. Now notice those words, those words. He repeats it. It's, and notice it's all in caps. And I think you probably know, all recognize what that is. That's the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, as we understand it. When it's all in caps like that in the Bible, that means it's Yahweh. And he says, I am. This is who I am. I am Yahweh. And that name, Yahweh, harkens back to when Moses met God at the burning bush because it's the same name he gave there. It's the root of the same thing he said when, when God said, I am who I am. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, that's who God introduces himself as. I am who I am. In other words, whatever I am, I will be. Now you might say, that's a strange name. Whatever I am, I will be. But if you look at it and understand it, it really means that whatever God is like, that's the way he's going to be consistently. Whatever he's like, he's always going to be like that. He's unshifting. He's stable. He's consistent. He'll be that way 24-7. If he says he's gracious, he's going to be gracious all the time. No exceptions. If he says he's slow to anger, he's always going to be that. That's what he is. That's his character. He's slow to anger all the time. He's true to his character. I am what I am. I will be who I am, he's saying. And then he tells us what he's like, what his character is. And the first thing you learn about God in verse number 6 from Exodus 34 is that he is compassionate and gracious. I don't know about you, but I love that. The first thing God says about himself is his name, and then he tells us who he is, what his character is like. Now, in Hebrew, like it is in English, or even more so in Hebrew, order is a cue to what is important. What comes first is most important. And the fact that God first says, I am compassionate and gracious, if he, he puts that at the top of the list, that means this is primary. This is dominant. This is the most important thing to know about God. I am compassionate and gracious, he says. And by the way, the word compassionate is usually, it may be translated in your Bible if you look at it, as merciful. And it comes from a Hebrew word that's derived from a Hebrew word that means female womb. What, you say? What? Compassionate? female womb the idea behind this is the feeling a mother has for her child think of that okay what kind of a feeling does a mother have the word compassionate means that well here it's it it means what a mother feels about her infant a good story to remind us of this comes from king solomon remember that story you all remember it he was approached by two women and one child okay and they were arguing they were both saying, this is my child, remember? And so what does Solomon do? He, well, you know, what's he, how's he going to know? There's no DNA testing. Uh, and so he comes with, up with an in, ingenious plan. And he tells one of his helpers, cut the baby in half. Cut the baby in half. And immediately, the true mother says this, 1 Kings 38, 26. She was deeply moved out of love 
for her son and said to the king, please, my lord, give her the living baby. Don't kill him. See those words there? Look at them carefully. She was deeply moved. Her love, her love moved. That's the same Hebrew word that describes God. He's compassionate, like a mother is compassionate. It's the same word that's used also in one of my favorite verses from Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 15. It says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? There it is right there. Compassion. Can, can a mother have no compassion for the child she's born? She may forget, says God, but I will not forget. That word translated compassion is the same word again. God's compassion is like the way a mother feels about her child, like a, like a father feels about their child. You know, I, I watched my wife raising three kids, and I'm a constant witness of my children and their spouses with their children. And if there's a peep in the night, if there's the slightest disturbance during their sleep, they're up, they're at it. When it comes to their kids, when it comes to my kids, my heart, my heart melts for them. A couple weeks ago, I got a text from our oldest son, Evan. It was Friday, and Evan loves to ski with his kids, even though they're not old enough to ski. I can guarantee you they're not old enough to, but he loves to do it. And he, his little one is Bowden. He's only three years old, but they go skiing, you know, Bowden between dad's legs mostly. And this is the text I got from Evan. It said this, Bowden is so sweet. <clears throat> this a.m., I was asking him if he was excited for the weekend activities on Sunday. <clears throat> I told him that we were going to do something fun in the cold, and to guess what it was. That's what he told his little son, Bowden. And very excitedly, this is what Bowden said. <clears throat> Put up the new lights in the garage? <laughs> I have to show you a little picture of Bowden so you know what's going on. There he is right there. He does, he does have arms. <laughs> but that's what Bowden said. We're going to put up the lights in the garage, Dad. He, wasn't, he didn't care about skiing. The love of a man for a woman. The love of a soldier for their country. The love of a sports fan for their team. None of it comes close to the love of a parent for their child. None of it. And that is how God feels about you. Isn't that amazing? I, there ought to be an amen to that. Huh? There ought to be an amen. That's the way God feels about you. That's how compassionate he is about you. <clears throat> now, this word is a feeling word. But the next word, gracious, is an action word. They're, and they're together. He com God is compassionate and gracious. They're combined. And in other words, this this. This word gracious means showing favor, showing action toward someone in a time of need, helping them in a time. That's what it means to be gracious. For example, Psalm 86 and verse number 15. But you, Lord, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithfulness, love and faithfulness. Then, then, that's what he says. Do you notice, do you notice anything um, interesting about that part? 
It's a quote from Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. The psalmist is quoting Exodus. And then he says this, Turn to me and be gracious to me. Same word. Turn to me and gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your man, of your maidservant. So this grace, what does it mean? It means God in action to help. God in action to serve and to, to be there, to rescue and save. Just like a parent. Just like a parent comes to rescue their kid in a time of, of need. So when we come before God, here's, I'd like to make it practical for you, okay? When you come to before God in prayer, in the morning, maybe in morning devotions, maybe you come before God in prayer as you're driving. You don't close your eyes, but you pray to God. Or maybe you're in the middle of a crisis at home or at work or sometime, and you come before God in prayer, you need to know what He feels about you. You need to know what He thinks about you. That He is a God who feels for you deeply. He is a God who cares for you in action, ways. And so you can, when you come to Him, pray something like this. God, you are compassionate. You care about me. You can say that. God, you're compassionate. You care about me. God, you're gracious. You want to help me. You can say that. And then you can say, you don't owe me, God. There's a ton of other people out there that probably need your help more than I need your help. But based on your compassion, based on your mercy and grace, please. And then say it. And you can say it with confidence, with hope that God does care. Just like Paul encourages us in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16. I love this. <clears throat> you know this verse. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of our need. Do you notice there again? He's quoting what verse? Exodus 34 and verse number 6. And he says we can come to God with boldness, with confidence, not because we're good, not because we're deserving, but because God is good, because He cares, and He knows what we need. He loves you. He loves you more than a father on earth will ever love you. And we can come to Him not as street beggars. We can come to Him as sons and daughters. Even when we stink of the pigsty that we've been in. We can come to Him because the Father is already running toward you. And the cook already has the meal in the kitchen ready to serve for the banquet for you coming home. That's the God that we serve. Now the next character trait, we're on to the next one. Okay, Exodus 34 and verse number 6. He, it says he's slow to anger. That's interesting. He's slow to anger. Now, to, that, that means slow to anger in Hebrew means literally that he is long of nostrils. Now, I don't want you to go away from here saying Pastor Jeff is, is blaspheming God. But that's what this Hebrew word actually means. God's nostrils are long. Now, why is it saying that in Hebrew? Well, it's because... This is what happens. You think of it. When you lose your temper, when, when something happens, you lose your temper, you take a big, deep breath, right? You, you pull it in, and your nostrils flare out, and then you verbally assault whoever it is that has made you angry. But, but, if you're slow to anger, you take a big, deep breath, you hold your mouth in, you purse your lips, and you bulge your nostrils. You're long of nostrils. God is slow to anger. He's long of nostrils. He doesn't have a temper. Isn't that good to know? He doesn't have a temper. He doesn't fly off 
on the handle. He doesn't slam the door in the house. Another word that some translations use for this slow to anger is really a good one, long-suffering. You may see in your Bible, that's what it says. He's, that's, that's a beautiful way to say it. God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger, but, but, but get this. He does get angry. He's slow to it, but he does get angry. And you may say, wow, I don't know about that. But that's the truth about God that's important as well. In fact, the Bible talks about it a lot. Over 600 times in the Old Testament, it says that God, it, it speaks of God's wrath, God's anger. And you might say, some people say in the world, they don't like God's anger. They say, I don't believe in God's anger. But I want to challenge you, you do believe in God's anger. You do. Just imagine a terrorist in a shopping mall with bombs stra strapped to his chest. Just imagine a con artist ripping off an elderly widow. Just imagine a deranged killer sneaking into an elementary school with a machine gun. There are times, there are times when an emotionally mature response to evil is anger. Anger. God's anger is never against people. It's always against the hurt, the sin, the misbehavior, the injustice, the offense that they perpetrate. And there comes a time when God says, enough is enough. And I have to say, thank God for that. Thank God for that. No more violence. No more injustice. No more killing. No more raping. No more stealing. No more enslaving. Now, it may be that you grew up in an angry home. It may be. And all you can think of is your dad screaming at you from down the hall. Maybe that was your experience. Screaming at you to do something that you hadn't done. Or maybe you didn't grow up around church at all. Maybe you came from a good family, but wasn't church. But, but now you just can't seem to get your act together. There's a sin in your life. You know it's wrong, but it's like you're in a rut and you can't get out of it. You're inching ahead, but you're frightened that it'll never be enough. And God says to you, I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. He's patient with you because he sees your future. He knows who you're becoming. Just like the best parent, he's coaxing you. He's encouraging you. He's calling you forward, never in harmful, hurtful ways, but always in caring ways, leading you one step at a time toward your destiny. That's who God is. That's my God. He's a good, good father. I love that song, if you know that. He's a good, good father. He is. He is. He's compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. And the next part of God's name is what, what makes God God are these words. This is Exodus 34, 6, uh, yeah, verse number 6. It says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, then this, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, notice something. This is the only character trait of God 
that is repeated. Look carefully there. One line says, he's abounding in love and faithfulness. And then the next line says, maintaining love to thousands. In other words, God is repeating himself. And when you repeat something, just like I said with his name, when you repeat something, it's the ancient writer's way of making a point. They couldn't use bold letters. They couldn't use underline, but they would repeat. And when they repeated it, it said, this is important. This is important. So God speaks of his love twice. Twice. Back to back. And this, you could say, is one of the truest things about God. He is overflowing. He is spilling over. His capacity knows no end, and it's love for you. That's how he is. And he's also faithful. He's trustworthy. You can count on him. He won't ever let you down. He won't ever. For us, for you and me, I don't know how it works for you, but for us oftentimes when things get difficult, when things get uncomfortable, when they get boring, we just leave. We just leave. We find a different job. We find a different church. We find a different city. We find different friends. We find a different marriage. We just cut ties and leave. God's not like that. God is faithful. God is faithful. And I, I, I know what you're thinking right now. If he's faithful, like you say, Pastor Jeff, he's, if he's faithful, if it's true, then, then why do I have this chronic illness? If he's faithful, then why am I 40 and still single? If he's faithful, why did I have a miscarriage? I know what you're saying. If he's faithful, why was my child born with special needs? If God is faithful, if he is. You know, isn't it true that sometimes it's hard to reconcile God's love and faithfulness with our lives? Because our lives just don't seem to be going that, that way. God never promised Abraham, Moses, Adam and Eve, Joseph, Daniel, Peter, anybody a carefree life with money in the bank and a condo down on Newport Beach. He didn't. Jesus said we would face hardship. You know that verse. In this world you would have, that's John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said it. But when God made his covenant with Abraham and God tells him, I'm just going to tell a short story about this. Remember when God made his covenant with, with Abraham and he told him, gather some animals for the sacrifice. He told them, get a bull, get a goat, get a ram and get a couple birds. And then he says, okay, cut all these. And Abraham knew what to do because he knew this is the way they made covenants back in Abraham's day. So they cut the animals in half and they spread them apart. One half on this side, one half on the other. And this is how people made an arrangement. This is called cutting a deal or cutting a covenant. The two people would walk side by side down through the two animals and it would like saying that this is what will happen if I don't keep my promise. I will be cut in half. If I don't keep, this is my guarantee to you, blood and death if I don't keep my promise. But then Abraham, thinking that he's probably going to walk down there with God, but Abraham, all of a sudden, God brings a deep sleep over him. And he has a vision. And he sees in his vision an image of what the Bible calls a smoking fire pot. And that smoking fire pot goes down between the animals by itself. 
Abraham isn't there. It's God walking through the animals. And God is saying, if you don't keep my covenant, Abraham, if your children don't keep my covenant, Abraham, if your children's children and their children, if they don't keep, I'm still going to keep my promise, Abraham. I'm going to keep my promise, Abraham. And that's his word to you. I'm going to keep my promise to you. God never steps back when your life gets messy. He never steps back. Not even if it's very, very messy. When Israel failed, God was faithful. When, even before that, when, Abraham, when Adam and Eve failed, God was faithful. When you fail, God will be faithful. God won't abandon you. He will be faithful to bless and heal and free and save. Why? Because Jesus took it all. That's why. Jesus took a millennia of broken promises and he drags it all to the cross. That's what Jesus did. Absorbing in his death and then breaking its hold over all humankind through his resurrection. That's what Jesus did. Because, because God is faithful. Because God is true. That's what we can look forward to. That's why we can look forward to the future. And I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. Pastor Jeff, you need to be finished. It's 12 o'clock. The sermon time is over. It's 12.03, my watch says. We're really out of time. And there's one last thing. The sermon is over, Pastor Jeff, but there's a dreadful part of that verse that I've always hated. I've always wondered about. Verse number seven. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. I don't know about you, but that sounds bad. Doesn't it? It does to me. It's not. It's not bad at all. In fact, it's really, really good. Because look at the whole verse, okay? Look at the whole verse. Go back a little bit. It says... Verse number seven starts, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Then it goes on. So, so what, what he does first, he reminds us of God's covenant love. And he says here, notice it, he says he's going to maintain it. He's going to protect it. He's going to guard it. In other words, God is standing sentry over his promise. He's guarding it. He's guarding his covenant love, his faithfulness, for you, for me. He's, and, and it's not just for you and for me. It says for thousands, for thousands. And, and it's limitless, not, just, not a number. But notice, notice, before you move on from that, notice it doesn't say that he just forgives. It says that he is forgiving. Forgiving is not something, an action of God. It's not just something he does. Forgiving is something he is. It's part of his character. It's the deepest part of his being. He's a forgiving God. He doesn't just forgive reluctantly. He doesn't just forgive grudgingly. He forgives eagerly. <laughs> it's like he wakes up every morning and he said, oh, uh, who can I forgive today? <laughs> he runs around trying to forgive. That's what he wants to do. 
But there's a counterpart to God's forgiving nature. And I like the way the ESV says it. It's a little bit closer, Bible scholars say, to the Hebrew. And it says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Yes, yes, God is forgiving by nature. But he's also by nature just. He's forgiving. But he doesn't let the guilty off the hook. God's goal is a place where there is no evil. That's God's goal. God's goal is a place where there's no more cruel dictators, destroying people, cities, countries with war. God's goal is that there's no more abuse, no more shootings in elementary schools or malls or, or social gatherings. God's goal is no more racism, no more exploitation, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more illness or betrayal. And that will happen because God is just. Because he's just. This will happen. But if you're still thinking of that unsettling line, okay, where it says he's going to, you know, give the kids the punishment for the grandparents, you know, for starters, that's not what it means. God never punishes a child for a parent's wrongdoing because the Bible says he doesn't. For example, Exodus 34, verse 7, I'm sorry, Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, parents are not to be put to death for their children. The Bible is not going to contradict itself. Nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sins. So, so God is not saying, God is not saying that if grandma cheats on her taxes, it's going to be taken out on you, little Johnny. No, no, that's not what God is saying. What is he saying? Simple. There's a consequence for every sin. There's a consequence for every sin. If mom and dad run a meth lab, their kids are going to pay. You can bet on it. It will be the children that will suffer most. He's saying that sin is in you. It's part of you. It's like the color of your eyes. It's like the shape of your hair. It's passed down from generation to generation. Now, I knew I had to find a way to get some more pictures in. So, you know, I was thinking of my my two youngest granddaughters, Mia and Zuri. They are just the sweetest bundles in the world. They are. They are totally sweet. But they're sinners. <laughs> they're sinners. Why? Because even they, as sweet as they are, they came into the, this world with a truckload of baggage. We all come with a truckload. I vowed to myself I will never be like my father. I'm not in many ways, but I'm beset by some of the same dysfunctions that were part of my family's life. God's goal is a world where there's no more evil. And he won't stop until he eradicates it from all of us. And I have to say, praise the Lord. I thank God that he's just. But, 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 before we finish, did you notice the disparity between these verses, okay? Notice it says, verse number seven, maintaining love to thousands of generations. 
and then he punishes the children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, okay, so get it in your mind, okay? Think Lady Justice with her scales, okay? Out like this, Lady Justice, a middle point, weighing things. On one side is God's mercy. What happens to the, to the scale? It's mercy to thousands and punishment to the third and fourth generation. It's, it's totally out of balance. The scale is thousands of times bent to the side of mercy. Yes, God does punish to the third and fourth, but he, is, he maintains mercy to thousands. That's what the verse says. So compare them. Yes, God is just. Yes. And that's why we can look forward to a better tomorrow. And God forgives. And that's why we can look forward to a better today. Constantly. Constantly he wipes the slate clean so we can start over all the time. Healing in Jesus Christ. But we need to grapple with the weight of sin. God did that in Jesus Christ. And I love the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. We'll finish with these verses. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate, get it, his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness that at the present time so that as so, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So in other words, Paul is saying that in Jesus, that is the solution to God's justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. On the cross, Jesus bore our wickedness, our sin, our punishment. On the cross, that was the expression of God's justice. But, yeah, God doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He takes it from you, from me, and he pays for it himself with the currency of his blood himself. We sin, Jesus dies. Jesus dies, we live in relationship with the Father. And with that, I have to say, friend, welcome to the kingdom of God. Sign this little sheet, if you would. Do you believe in God the Father? I believe in him, from whom all things came and whom I live and have my being. And I'm committing myself to him. Will you? Will you today? Sign that. Commit yourself to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and grace in Christ. Thank you. Thank you that you took all our sins and Jesus bore them on the cross, the punishment for our sins so that we might have the hope of life forever. Yeah, there's consequence. There's a consequence in this life. We oftentimes bear that in such painful ways, but you give us a way of help, a way of mercy and grace, and you, and you work with us all our life to remove from us all those horrible things and to make us disciples, members of your kingdom through your grace and mercy. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.